0: Hello and welcome to Listen Closely with John and Chris. I am John in the balmy and sticky northeastern part of the United States, and I'm joined by Chris in the lush, evergreen, beautiful Pacific Northwest. Christopher. Hello, John. How are we doing?
1: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How about yourself?
0: Oh, you know, I'm—I I really can't complain. It's—it's it's July; the sun is shining. Um, talk to me in two months; I'll have plenty to complain about. But right now, I'm okay.
1: I—I I feel like when we talk off air, you're often complaining. I feel like this is an an on air persona that you're trying to create here.
0: No, you're right. Yeah, I—I I am a really whiny son of a bitch. <laughs> let's face it.
1: <laughs> but, but uh, you know.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's skip the formalities and let's just put the spaghetti in the machine, shall we? Let's do it. Because I, I have to be honest with you, man. I'm incredibly excited for this episode. In fact, I was going to say that I think this episode is going to be off the hook, but I changed my mind. Chris, I think this episode is going to be Bob Geldof the hook.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so we, how's we, that for an we, intro? We're doing a Boomtown Rats episode?
0: Oh no, nobody should do a goddamn Boomtown <laughs> Rats episode. I even though this is airing on Monday and you know how I feel about Mondays.
1: That's that's actually a pretty good song. Um
0: That's a great. You know what inspired that song, right? No. A girl like opened fire on a playground, surprisingly not in the United States. Uh this happened I think in like London in the or England in the 70s. And when they asked her why she did it, she said I I don't like Mondays.
1: Oh my God! This is we're talking about the Blue Time Rats. Uh, I don't like Monday's song. Yeah, wow! I did not know that.
0: Yes. So, oh, all right. nice. well, speaking speaking of Mondays, yeah. the, this Monday, July thirteenth, marks the thirty fifth anniversary of the Live Aid concerts. Yeah. This was, in my humble opinion, arguably the most significant concert event in rock and roll history. Uh, would you agree?
1: I think it has to be just with the the sheer number of incredible performers gathered together at once. I I don't, I don't think it's ever been matched. Yeah. I think that's probably true.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, here's the thing. Woodstock went on for a few days, was a cultural phenomenon. And I think very few would argue that the quality of the performances and performers were much better at Woodstock, but live aid was a 16-hour concert that ran simultaneously for several of those hours on two stages thousands of miles apart with crowds watching all over the world thanks to everything being beamed via satellite and all this was in an effort to raise money for starving people famine in africa and ethiopia in particular and this was unprecedented at the time you know woodstock i think as amazing as it all looks it was really just an excuse for a bunch of hippies to sit around, not shower for a few days, trip in, on an insane amount of LSD, and, you know, watch uh, the best bands of the late 1960s perform. So at least Live Aid had some sort of importance.
1: Well, and don't forget, too, because of TV, I mean, Live Aid was seen by close to... 2 billion people supposedly. So was it that many? Wow. Yeah. They estimate like up to 40% of the world's population at one time or another was, was watching live aid that day.
0: That's incredible. (laughs) And you know, (laughs) I I think people today forget just how widespread and horrific the famine situation in Ethiopia was back in the 1980s. I mean, it was, it was insane. And I, here's what I want to know. Has it gotten any better? I think it has, maybe thanks to Sir Bob Geldof and the Live Aid Trust. I mean, not for anything, but I've seen a lot of Ethiopian restaurants popping up in metropolitan areas. Um, (laughs) They can't just be eating like anything they're finding on the ground anymore. They probably have a very distinct, interesting cuisine.
1: Ethiopian food is tremendous. I I actually really like Ethiopian food. Um,
0: What, What would be an example? Like, Crickets and sand, or is it like legit? Oh, no, it's
1: really good. I, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like Indian food, I would say. Um, I like that. uh, that's a very like tenuous comparison, but probably closest I could get to it would be that it's. But the great thing is they have this spongy bread called injera, and you use you break off pieces of the bread and you scoop up the food. So you're you're eating with your hands, which is this really great kind kind of primal thing. I think you I think you'd like it.
0: I bet you Sir Bob Geldof makes a mean spongy bread.
1: I bet. I bet. And if anybody out there, you know, is not familiar with Bob Geldof, I think it's kind of a funny thing because he, if you were going to think that anyone at that time would be organizing a global, you know, global (laughs) air of concerts featuring everybody in the world, though not everybody, we'll get into that. But, um, you know, Bob Geldof is not the choice, right? I mean, you would have thought, oh, no. maybe Bono, maybe Springsteen, maybe Elton John, or who knows. Bob Geldof is, you know, the singer for the Boomtown Rats, which, you know, they had some success, right? But they're, they're not at all like a powerhouse.
0: No, they were playing uh, small little third-rate universities in Ireland yeah. prior to uh, the Band-Aid single, uh, Do They Know It's Christmas?, And after that, it kind of propelled them into a little bit more stardom. But I think I Don't Like Mondays was a hit in, like, 79 or 80. So they were considered washed up by 85. Um, But he was very much a second-rate Irish post-punk new wave singer. You know, Bob Geldof was nobody special. But for whatever reason he stumbled upon this documentary on famine in Ethiopia and it really resonated with him and it changed his life. And frankly it changed the course of history.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think there's some debate over like just how, just how much impact it had. Uh, I mean, they, but they did, they raised an insane amount of money an insane amount of awareness. And like, I, I know there was some controversy about, you know with any of these aid type things, like how much aid actually gets there, how much of it gets kinda uh, cut off by the the governments that are you know soaking up that money and all that, but undoubtedly undoubtedly like it had a huge impact
0: um, Do you have any personal recollections? I mean we were only eight years old at the time. I remember a lot from that day because I watched it. You don't forget I have older siblings. Right. Um, who were teenagers at the time. Uh, do you have any recollections of watching it as it aired on July 13th, 1985?
1: I do, but I think it might be one of those like fake memories that you invent later on. That's well,
0: okay. Well, we just, <laughs> we just fake it right now. You wouldn't be the only person to fake it with me this weekend. So <laughs> I'm, <not> sure <laughs> I'm sure that's not true.
1: No, oh, not listen, true. we'll we'll get into that in the next <laughs> episode. Um, I I remember watching it at your parents' house. Is that possible? Did I? No,
0: no, I don't think. Well, maybe, you know what? You might have been there for part of it.
1: I, I remember watching it in the room where the, the, I think there was a computer in there. Was it your brother's room? I, you know, like you'd go up the stairs and go to the No, window. you know what you're thinking
0: of? You're thinking of the Freddie Mercury tribute concert from oh. April of 92. okay. Uh, the same venue and a lot of the same performers. And I remember that because we watched that up in my brother's room, which had the big television and yeah. the computer. Okay. You All got right. your benefit concerts mixed up, man. Yeah. <laughs> Next you're going to tell me you watched the concert for Bangladesh from 1970.
1: Is there a Bangladesh
0: 1970 concert? Yeah, George Harrison organized that. He was kind of the original Gelda. Oh,
1: wow, I didn't realize that. Yes. Um, Okay, then, then I really don't I yeah. don't have memories of Live Aid until I was a little bit older, you know, watching clips of it and hearing about it and all that. Yeah. What tell me about your experience watching it though?
0: Well again, I have I have older siblings, as you know. Um and I have cousins, uh one cousin in particular who you know who's five years older, who was uh would spend a lot of time over the summer uh really? visiting us. Yes. And yeah. um you know, he had spoken a lot about it. My siblings were talking a lot about it. And um, the night before, we were all speaking about it. And I remember waking up bright and early that Saturday morning and going downstairs, turning on the TV in the den and watching the very beginning of the broadcast. And, you know, it was the, the Wembley performance because Wembley started first, 7 a.m. our time, 12 p.m. their time. Um, and, and, you know, the performers that they put on first at Wembley an eight-year-old kid in Connecticut had no clue who the hell these performers were. Oh, right. So, you know, the, the first performers of the day were Status Quo, uh, the Style Council, who I would eventually become big fans of, Ultravox, featuring Midge who co-wrote Do They Know It's Christmas with Bob Geldof and organized the event with him, but gets very little credit. Um, but these performers and performances did absolutely nothing for me but i was just floored by the the excitement the grandeur of the event it left this indelible impression on me and throughout the day i would watch various performances um you know my parents yelled at me a lot as they often did and often still do uh but it, on that day in 1985, it was to go outside and play and not stay inside. You know, it was a beautiful 80-degree summer day, but I didn't want to. I wanted to watch these concerts. And it was this this mystery of you didn't know who was going to perform next because it was all very last-minute thrown together. Um, right. The two performances that I remember clear as day where I was and being glued to the television for these two in particular um, – My parents took my cousin and I to some of their friends' house. Uh, These friends lived down on the beach in Fairfield. They were doctors, um, and they had this beautiful beach house. And the plan was that we were all going to go outside. We were going to swim, sit at the beach. But no, even these middle-aged Hindu physicians had Live Aid on TV. And this was mid to late afternoon, and I remember watching The Who. They reunited and performed there. That was at 4 p.m., eastern standard time on the uh 359 p.m on the nose I, I researched it today um and then at nine thirty p.m so we're coming up on my bedtime at that point uh came the moment everyone was talking about and that was the zeppelin reunion yeah. we're back at my parents house um uh, my brother had just gotten home from being out with friends and he and my cousin kept talking about zeppelin zeppelin i had no clue what a led zeppelin was And uh, they kept discussing whether or not they were going to sing this song, which to me had a very scary, ominous title called Stairway to Heaven. I thought, that is the most disturbing freaking name of a song for an eight-year-old. And then uh, they're in the other room. I'm watching Phil Collins play In the Air tonight. And then he grabs the microphone and says, I want to introduce you to some of my friends. The crowd at RFK Stadium was r f k or yeah r f k stadium just yeah, yeah. explodes, and my brother and cousin come booking into the room and they don't even sit down they're too excited they're glued to the t v watching and standing up, and the rest of course is uh is history
1: yeah, yeah, that's amazing how that you remember all that still It shows what a cultural phenomenon it was um
0: it really really was.
1: Um, you know, while, while I didn't, I didn't watch it, but I do certainly remember like hearing about it and hearing about it on, on the news when my parents were listening to the news and hearing people talk about it. And, you know, there, I mean, you know, there was the thing on not too long ago, sort of the COVID, uh, quarantine, uh, music, um, the, with all of these performances, you know, Elton John was there. I mean, wasn't there? Yes. everybody performing at their home and, and that's great, but this was different in that i mean back then you, you couldn't you couldn't just go on YouTube and see uh Queen or u two play like we can now, you know exactly uh, time I mean, so so it was a really special thing to have all these incredible artists together
0: and you you touched upon something, Chris, and no youtube there was no internet back then unless you're Al Gore. <laughs> Um, there was, (laughs) we, we didn't have VHS recorder. So to me, Live Aid sort of grew in this mythical sense over the years. And it was, you know, Geldof refused to release any of the performances commercially until 2004 when he put out maybe seven hours of it on DVD. And so it was like, it was something I always thought of. But I couldn't actually watch or listen to um in nineteen ninety five v h one on the tenth anniversary showed maybe five or six hours of it um and I made my my high school girlfriend sit and watch all five or six hours with me and she was not a happy camper um I mean she wasn't a happy camper anyway she didn't me. She, I'm sure she did, but, um, despite me being giddy with excitement, seeing like old footage of Brian Ferry's Fandau ballet, you know, she was like, all right, why aren't we watching blues traveler? Um, (laughs) but the point I'm getting at is, is you're right. I mean, you couldn't, there was no YouTube. There was nothing. So they showed this once, this event happened once for 16 hours and then it disappeared for years and years.
1: Yeah. And I
0: think that's what made it that much more interesting because I got news for you. Musically, when you go back and you watch the performances, most of them are not that good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's a few that, that really stand out. Uh There's a bunch that are kind of pedestrian. Probably because everybody was doing a whole bunch of cocaine backstage. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot
0: of that going on. <laughs> Now, you know, as interesting as the concert itself is and the list of performers who played at Wembley and in and, and Philly that day, what would make the even better concert, Chris, would be the notable absences. Um, in fact, it's been said that the biggest acts of 1985 skipped Live Aid altogether. Mm. Um, and I did some painstaking research oh. um, to figure out who and why, okay. who, who missed Live Aid and why they missed Live Aid. All so right. um, if you'd oblige me, uh, here are some interesting, interesting little tidbits. Cat Stevens, who had done nothing in the 80s, was scheduled to make a bit of a comeback at Wembley, his first live performance in years. But for whatever reason, they canceled his slot at the very last minute. Oddly enough, he appears on stage in the finale in the background saying, do they know it's Christmas time? But no one knows why his slot was canceled. Um, Culture Club, you know, they were huge in the mid-80s. Huge. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Um, their manager forgot to call Bob Geldof back. <laughs> <laughs> um, Def Leppard, they were missing something in particular. And what they were missing was their drummer's left arm, or was right this, arm, was it? Was this right this was, arm? Yeah, yeah. It's like six months after the accident. Um, <laughs> uh, so they, you know, they didn't know what to do at that point. They didn't know that they were going to soldier on. And I mean, Christ, talk about a comeback story! Three years later, pour some sugar on me. Um,
1: yeah, if, if anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, the the drummer for Def Leppard is. Lost an arm in a terrible car accident,
0: uh, and yeah, and he still plays with them today. It's incredible. Um, Who Eurythmics, Annie Lennox was sick with a throat infection. Oh. Um, Huey Lewis in the news were supposed to play Philadelphia. In fact, their names printed on poster, but for some reason pulled out last minute. Um, wow. Same thing for Billy Joel, whose name appeared on the poster but did not perform. This one's my personal favorite. John Mellencamp uh, was asked to play the Philadelphia gig and responded by saying, concerts that raise money aren't a good idea. Now, this is the man that would later go on to form Farm Aid.
1: Yeah. Well, that's bizarre.
0: My second favorite, Prince. <laughs> now, Prince was huge in 1985. Uh, did not perform because he had a fear of being assassinated at an open
1: <laughs> air concert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fear of being assassinated at an open air concert. Did, did yes. He never he never performed outside.
0: When he says "Let's go crazy," he meant it. Wow! I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Paul Simon, his name appears on the poster, and had agreed to perform uh, in Philly, but then the concert promoter, Billy Graham, started to pressure Paul Simon to reach out to Art Garfunkel to turn it into a one-off uh, Simon & Garfunkel set. Simon said, hell no, and refused to perform. Um, probably the biggest artist of 1985 was Bruce Springsteen. Nobody knows for certain, but uh, there's a couple of theories that uh, have floated around for years. One is that he just got married at that point in time. Uh, two is that he was exhausted from his world tour from with the E Street Band that had just ended. Um, Rod Stewart couldn't put a backing band together in time. Mm. Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger decided he wanted to do a solo set. He actually duetted uh, with Tina Turner for most of his set, right. uh, which pissed off the rest of the band, leaving Keith Richards and Ron Wood to disastrously join Bob Dylan on stage In Philly, Van Halen did not perform for the simple fact that they did not have a lead singer. David Lee Roth had just left the band. They hadn't yet recruited Sammy Hagar. Oh wow! Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder both declined to perform due to what they felt were a lack of African-American artists on the bill. Hmm. Uh, Tears for Fears, a band that probably had the most popular album that summer, which was Songs from the Big Chair. Uh, were scheduled to perform but canceled last minute due to exhaustion. And finally, the Beatles. Right up until the last moment of the Wembley concert, people held out hope for a Beatles reunion that was all over the, the British press, that Paul, George, and Ringo would reunite with Julian Lennon, John's son, who was kind of a big deal at that time, filling in for his dad. Um, the lights go out at for the last performance of the night and a spotlight comes on stage on a piano and it's Paul McCartney and only Paul McCartney playing, let it be. So uh, that was not to be.
1: Right. Right. I mean, you know, there are so many people missing, like you said, it it might've even been a, a better concert if you just had the people missing, but they still got so many So many huge acts. Oh, agreed.
0: You know, when you look at who was there, it really is an amazing sort of time capsule,
1: I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So Yeah.
0: There were many interesting moments at the Live Aid concerts. I'm (laughs) sure you watched a few. Uh, Any sort of weird moments or odd things that sort of unique things that stick out in your mind?
1: Uh, To me, one of the highlights is the – just the the day that Phil Collins had. Um, yeah. you know, Phil <laughs> Phil Phil decided he's gonna play both shows, uh, which are separated by thousands of miles in an ocean. And uh, so he does what is maybe one of the coolest things that anyone could do in nineteen eighty five, which was he performs which one did he do first? Did he do Wembley Wembley first? And then he went yeah, to he- Navy, right? Not
0: only did he – yeah, he performs in Wembley by himself. Then he does a set with Sting. Right. And then – he yeah, then go on.
1: Right, yeah. So then he hops on the Concorde. The Concorde was the coolest thing. It was this, you know – Very phallic-looking, right? Very phallic-looking. It was like for the ultra-rich and famous, uh, this jet that could get from, you know, Paris to New York in, I don't know, what five hours or something which at the time was, was very impressive, very expensive. Phil hops on the Concord, heads down to Philly, uh, where he plays some of his own songs, a couple of his own songs, I believe, and then he sits in as the drummer for the uh, Zeppelin reunion, right?
0: Oh, yes, the infamous Led Zeppelin <laughs> One of two drummers, the other drummer being Tony Thompson, the late Tony Thompson of the band Schick or Sheik, depending on how you uh, pronounce the word. Um, But, yeah, it was the, you know, some would say, who won Live Aid? Was it Bob Geldof? Was it the Ethiopian people? Was it Freddie Mercury and Queen?
1: I say no. Phil Collins won Live Aid. (laughs) It is. What strikes me about it is, you know, it's in the middle of this thing where they raise all this money for this incredible cause, And there's something about this that's just sort of like, hey, look at me.
0: Oh, it's gluttony. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. It's like you just couldn't help yourself but turn this into like a, uh, you know, and, and I love it. I kind of love it.
0: I kind of oh, I do too. It's 80s excess at its finest. Yeah, yeah. There were, there were a variety of interesting moments too. I mean, I, I went back and I watched a lot as I prepared for this. I mean, obviously – I think Phil Collins is the most interesting moment to talk about, but you had the who's much anticipated reunion where like two minutes into it, a generator blew out yeah. causing like 15 minutes of their performance to not even be seen yeah. um, at the live telecast. Um, McCartney being the final act to perform at Wembley goes out and starts playing let it be and nobody can hear him. And you've got all these stage hands figuring out what's going on. Now, McCartney's singing the whole time because he doesn't know that nobody can hear him. Finally, at the very start of the last verse, some guy figures out that McCartney's microphone wasn't plugged in. Oh, God. Unbelievable. Um, my personal favorite moment is the power station in the Philadelphia <laughs> performance. Now, power station were a one-off uh um, supergroup of the 1980s. You had... The two of the t- three tailors from Duran Duran, Tony Thompson from Shick, who I mentioned a moment ago, and the late, great, unparalleled, amazing Robert Palmer. Yeah, really? Um, they had just put out this kick ass album, which is really a good album, and they were all over MTV, and it was big to do that they were going to play live eight, so They come out and they start playing. And then the audience is like, Whoa, wait a minute, you guys pull the bait and switch. That's not Robert Palmer. <laughs> so I guess in the days leading up to Live Aid, Palmer's like, I don't want to do this power station thing anymore. I want to focus on my solo career, which was a smart move because Addicted to Love would come out a couple of years later um, and Simply Irresistible. Yeah. So the last minute, replace him with Michael Debar, who was an absolute nobody um he's known as being the husband of Pamela DeBar, who was a notorious rock and roll groupie in the 19, late 1960s, early 70s, who as a teenager screwed every rock god imaginable. So this is DeBar's big day, and he's got all this, like, asshole rock and roll posturing as he's strutting his stuff on stage in Philly. <laughs> and he's wearing, like, baggy pants, a linen shirt. Uh, he's got this ridiculous tan and he's trying to do, like, rock and roll moves. And there's a split second where you can actually catch it where he runs down to the edge of the stage, sort of onto the catwalk. And the people in the front row just shower him with water, beer. They just throw everything at him. They're like, who is this asshole? Where's Robert Palmer? <laughs> um, another, another story I love is... Um, Bob Dylan's shambolic performance. Um, I told you how the Rolling Stones were pissed that Jagger didn't want to perform. So Dylan invites Keith Richards and Ron Wood to uh, join him on stage in Philly. So Richards and Wood get a limousine from Manhattan to Philly. Now that's what do we figure? Like probably two, two and a half hours, at least three, maybe by car.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So if you're Keith Richards in 1985 and you're in a stretch limo for three hours, what are you going to do? You're not (laughs) watching television. So by the time they get to Philly, they're so bombed. They go on stage without rehearsing. They go on stage, they perform with Dylan. Uh, It is so disastrous. They look shit faced out of their minds. Um, Ron Wood breaks his guitar string. And kinda of hands it off to a roadie to tell him, like, get me another one. Isn't it that they it don't have
1: Oh, sorry. Wasn't it that Dylan broke his guitar and then Ron Wood gave him his?
0: Thank you. That's right. Dylan breaks his guitar, Ron Wood gives him his, signals for the roadie to give him another, there is no other. So Ron <laughs> Wood finishes the set playing air guitar.
1: <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing.
0: I, I that could be the finest moment of the day. Um
1: yeah. It's <laughs> like to watch. It's,
0: <laughs> it's it's cringeworthy but it's pretty amazing.
1: It's really like something out of like a Spinal Tap movie, you know, but better. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. No, it's it's oh man.
0: Now, um, uh, do you want to discuss what we feel are the best performances of the day?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Let's let's, uh, let's get into it. Uh, how we're gonna, we've each got five here. We each have five. We, we do this like we did with the Yaw rock episode, where we kind of go back and forth.
0: Yeah, I think that's going to be the uh, the the best way to go. And this is a challenge. I mean, we're talking sixteen hours of music to go through. Now, you know, thirteen of those sixteen hours were awful. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but the other three hours were gold. So what do you have for your number five?
1: Alright, for my number five, um this one three songs this this person did, and I think they're all outstanding. Um Mr. Eric Clapton. Ooh. Um he did White Room, yes. he did She's Waiting, and he did layla And he had he had Phil Collins sitting in on drums. That's Uh, right. Of course he did because Phil Collins was everywhere that day. Um, And this is in the Philadelphia concert. Um, And I just think he nails it. I mean, he brought he, he, you know he 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 picked the right songs. I think with these things, you know, it's often about picking the right songs. You want to pick something that plays well to a a big crowd that has some energy. you know, she's waiting. He, he just kind of tears it up, and people are, are so into it. Um, all three of them were great. Great selections, great energy, um, and just a real, I think, tight performance, too. You know, there are so many of these performances where they're uh, far from tight, um, and he sounded good um phil sounded good phil didn't like overtake him on the drums as phil maybe want to do sometimes he saved that for the zeppelin performance (laughs) but yeah i really like that performance
0: that is a great performance and uh i that was close to making my top five what i love what clapton did and you know clapton's one of the few that can do this so he does one song from cream one song from Derek and the dominoes and a contemporary solo hit that he had at the time because she's waiting i think had just come out a few months prior. Yeah. And uh, you're right. He nails all of them. The band sounded incredible. That piano exit to Layla is not easy to replicate, and they did a fantastic job jamming on that. Um, and yep. Clapton looked good. Clapton always, when he started to clean up his act a bit, Clapton always dressed impeccably well, very representative of, of whatever that era was.
1: He did, and... <laughs> The outfits, though, and the hair of that era. Can we just take a brief moment to talk about that? Because why brief? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the hair. Going back and watching this, I mean, everybody remembers the '80s as being the decade of of big hair. But oh man, it is just so in your face. And I'm not talking about the women. I'm talking about the men. <laughs> I mean, that's right. Oh my lord. I mean, Clapton actually looked. You know, Clapton could pass like today with the way that he looked, but. Um, you know, some of the hair on like, like Daryl Hall has this incredible mane. Um, and oh, and the outfits, I mean, they're so big, they're so baggy. It's, it's amazing. I love it. It it really
0: is. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. But no, I'm with you on that. Clapton across the board, class act, great performance, uh, very much one of the better performances of the day.
1: What's your number five?
0: My number five was Elton John. Um, and I think people forget about this performance because I think it came after Queen or a few slots after Queen. Um, but this is peak Elton. And it's a couple years before he had this massive vocal crisis in the sixties. I'm sorry, the eighties rather the mid eighties. Cause you can notice his voice gets very hoarse uh, from sort of the, the mid eighties on. Um, but it, in Live Aid, he gives a pitch perfect performance. Uh, listen to him do Rocket Man and he hits the falsetto notes so incredibly well. It's an energetic performance, some of it thanks to the phenomenal backing band, some of it thanks to cocaine. Um, <laughs> and then George Michael comes out and the two of them duet on uh, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. And yeah, yeah that's a great great moment uh I think Elton's performance is one of the most underrated performances of the day i mean he really he brought his a
1: game he did and he did like a full five i think five songs which um full yeah. five songs, full band
0: backing singers it was a re- it was a real show
1: and uh and Kiki D was there, right? He did uh don't go breaking my heart with her as well.
0: That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Kiki D was backing vocals and then she stepped out front to do the duet with him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You're what's, right. Uh, yeah. What's,
0: what's your number four?
1: My number four, this is a little bit of a sleeper. Um, I think um, I just thought they were really tight. I, the cars. Yes. Cars had a great performance and I didn't really even realize it. I, I don't, I don't know, maybe I miss it, but I I don't often hear people talk about their Live Aid performance. But when I went back and watched, um, you know, they did four songs. They did You Might Think, uh, Drive, Just What I Needed, and Heartbeat City. And, um, man, they just sounded so damn good. Uh, I
0: think an incredibly underrated band, a terrific group of musicians, and you're right, that was a great performance. I've read a few things online that – Echo your sentiments exactly. They say that is a sleeper performance that people have forgotten about during Live Aid, but probably one of the best performances of the day, definitely in Philly.
1: Yeah, just outstanding. I mean, both Rico Kasich and who, who's the other? Uh, I'm forgetting his name. Ben
0: Ben Orr.
1: Ben Orr was fantastic, yeah. Um, you know, just, again, you know, we've talked about how you said like 13 of the 16 hours are crap and, and that's probably true. And so, when you get somebody who just sounds so on the money, it, it just it jumps off the screen. And that's um,
0: a, they had a string of hits right around that
1: time. I mean, it was a it was a great performance by a great band. Yeah. How about you? Number four. What do you got? Ah, uh,
0: the hometown heroes of the day, Daryl Hall and John Oates. Um, yes. Man, oh man! I rem- that's another one of the performances that I remember watching. Uh, in my parents' den that night. People forget just how damn big these guys were in '85. I mean, they were as big as Daryl's hair. <laughs> and um, there they are in their hometown, performing one of the last sets at Philly of the day. So one of the last sets of Live Aid, and the energy level is so so high. The audience who have been sitting in the in the baking hot sun at this point for like 10 hours or whatever are, are loving every single minute of it. They look incredible. They sound incredible. They've got such energy. They come out, they, they open with out of touch, which was a big hit at the time. That segues into man Eater. Then they bring out two of the original temptations yeah. and they do immediately a temptation hits. I think it's just a phenomenal performance.
1: I agree. They're actually, they're actually my number three. Um hey look at that. So shall we uh segue right now? Yeah, let's segue, baby. Um I agree with all of that. They it's they just bring such great energy to that. Um you know, and I think it's partially I think they picked the right songs. Um having the Temptation, you know, a couple guys from the t- Temptations there, uh David Ruffin and Eddie Kendricks, it's always oh, it great. I mean, and I'm sure that they were pumped out of their minds to be Playing at home in Philadelphia. Um, well, D-
0: Ruffin was was gacked out of his mind, um, most likely. <laughs> but yeah, regardless,
1: yeah. Um, but uh, just so good, just so so good. They sounded they sounded good. You know, I, I don't know that they like Daryl vocally. I, I think he sounded really good. I wouldn't say it was like the greatest performance I've ever heard from him, but. But it was no, very- but it was just a, a great energy level. Oh, that the energy was amazing. And his, his hair, John, his hair, I can't. <laughs> one thing that you, anyone takes from this episode, go check out Daryl Hall's hair from Live Aid. It is like the amount of money that had to go into this hairdo. It's phenomenal. It is like a lion's mane. Uh, it's magical.
0: Yeah, that, that was special hairdo. And of course you had John Oates mustache to, to compliment it. <laughs> exactly. They were the perfect compliment. Um, so that was your number three. Look at what, that. Great minds what, think alike.
1: What's your, uh, what's your number three?
0: So we're staying in Philadelphia here. Uh, looks like Philly's really coming up big because we've got Cars, Daryl Hall and John Oates in my number three. Uh, this is going to be a controversial choice, but I'm going with the Led Zeppelin reunion. What? Uh, Yes. I know it's widely considered to be a disaster, and there are reasons behind this. Um, and Zeppelin has distanced themselves from Live Aid, from anything having to do with Live Aid. Uh, they would not agree to let their performance be put on any of the Live Aid re-releases on DVD or anything like that. Uh, you can find bootleg versions on YouTube with grainy quality. Um, but here's the thing even at their worst, and they were at their worst there, Zeppelin is still better than most. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they reunited to begin with, without John Bonham, who had passed away more than five years earlier, that was big in and of itself. Um, There's a lot of stories as to why the performance was a disaster. They didn't rehearse, supposedly. Um, Jimmy Page was strung out on heroin. His guitar was out of tune. Robert Plant's voice was very hoarse, but he also walks out on stage smoking a cigarette. Um, the sound was so noisy from the audience and get the proper drum beat going with, uh, so that the rest of the band could follow him. And if you watch him, he's constantly looking over at the other drummer, Tony Thompson, um, in hmm. the shit talk that happened in the months and years that would follow this performance, <laughs> uh, uh, they really throw Phil Collins under the bus. They blame him for the the Zeppelin guys blame Phil Collins, say he ruined the entire performance. Uh, Phil Collins blames the Zeppelin guys, claims that he almost walked off stage halfway through the performance and just said, fuck this. Um, but listen, it's a deeply flawed performance, but the audience in Philadelphia goes absolutely insane the the announcers the MTV DJs are screaming with enthusiasm um it's strangely moving it's a very effective performance uh and it's something that you wouldn't see you would only see again three or four times over the next 35 years
1: okay i hear you i mean there is there is an energy to that uh performance whether it's from them or probably more from the crowd i think that's that's something that I noticed watching these, you know, when you think about really what makes a great live performance, um, if the crowd is really into it, like even if the performance isn't that great, it makes it seem great.
0: I agree. Yeah. I think that made a big, big difference. Um, Energy was there. Definitely.
1: Yeah. But I hear you. I remember the, the MTV, the VJs too, were—I mean—they were just like out of their minds.
0: Everybody um, was because nobody yeah. thought this would happen. This—the only thing bigger than this would have been if that Beatles reunion Beatles. actually happened.
1: Sure, sure.
0: So people settled for this, and it was huge. And um, look, okay. it, it w- wasn't great musically, but it was—it it was momentous. It was significant.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: What's your number two?
1: My number two, the Boys from Dublin. You too.
0: Oh, Jesus. All right, so I'm going to stop you right there. Great Minds Do Think Alike. That's my number two.
1: They're your number two. I mean, it's they only do two songs, Sunday Bloody Sunday and Bad. Um, Sunday Bloody, Bloody Sunday is not – I mean, if I gave you my top 15 U2 songs, it's probably not making it in there. I understand not even close. Why it's, you know, an important song, but, um, but man, it's such a high-energy song. It just, it just totally works, you know, with 80,000 people screaming at Wembley, um, you know, and Bad is such a phenomenal song. that pro- That I mean, is incredible, really up, you know, U2 songs, um, you know, Bono is strutting around the stage. Uh, he does this, he does the thing where he starts, I can't remember if it's in the Sunday Bloody Sunday or Bad. I think it might be in Bad where he, he walks out onto the catwalk and starts kind of beckoning some women in the crowd up.
0: It was it was bad. He pulled one woman out of the crowd randomly and onto the stage.
1: Yeah, I think so. One of them is, like, trying to get on, and I think security kind of takes her away, but another one gets up, and Bono, they just embrace, and he's just sort of, like, you know, slowly kind of waltzing with her as he's singing. And maybe it's, you know, maybe it's just because now it's uh, it's very difficult to like hug even your family members because of COVID. <laughs> Something about that, though, just, man, I found so touching watching all this week. But um,
0: do you know the the story behind that? Because you said at the onset uh, they perform only two songs. You know yeah, there was supposed yeah. to be a third song. Oh, there was? What was it? Yeah, the, the biggest hit that they had up to that point in their entire career, one of the biggest hits in 1985 was Pride in the Name of Love. Okay. They were supposed to close out their set with that, Bono decides randomly to do exactly what you just said, jump into the crowd, pull a woman out of the crowd and dance with her. And in doing that, the rest of the band's looking at each other going, what the hell just happened? The (laughs) clock's ticking. The performance ends. They go backstage and they start yelling at Bono. And they're like, you son of a bitch. There you go again. You got to go off and do your own thing. You got to be a showboat. We wow. didn't get to play our big hit in front of how many billions of people watching, and then everyone backstage is coming out going, guys, guys, hold on a second, people are going crazy. This was one of the best performances of
1: the day. Yeah, oh my god, that's amazing. That's amazing.
0: It's a it's a heartfelt performance. It, it's it's proof of why you two would soon become the biggest band in the world. I think, and arguably the biggest rock band to come out of the nineteen eighties.
1: Yeah, yeah. And now, I mean, now you got me thinking too about, I mean, Pride is such an anthemic, you know, kind of stadium rock song. Man, could you imagine if they had done that there? Oh,
0: It would have been incredible. But the performance in and of itself was
1: still a landmark performance. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so we're down to, that was your number two as well, so we're down to number one. Yeah,
0: yeah. and I, I have a sinking feeling that you took the easy way out with number one.
1: I don't. <laughs> you're, you're Robert Teppering me here. Um, I I would not say it's the easy way out. I think it's look. Sometimes sometimes the consensus is right. Um, and Queen's performance led by Freddie Mercury at Live Aid is iconic. It's it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. It's it's the highlight of the day. Uh, do, oh. You disagree. Wholeheartedly, I think
0: Queen gives a great performance. I think Freddie, the consummate showman, has the audience eaten out of the palm of his hand. But I'm sick of hearing about this goddamn performance. And you know they 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 took a lot of liberties in the movie. Um, and they talk about how this is the performance that saved the band, and how it, you know Freddie knew he had AIDS and. And told the guys, I, I'm, I'm dying or I have AIDS, you know, moments before they went on stage. That's not true. He didn't get diagnosed with AIDS for another two years. Um, it's a great performance. It's a fantastic performance. But it's really just Queen being Queen. It's Freddie being Freddie. If you watch their 1986 concert film from Wembley, it's kind of the same thing. It's just two hours longer
1: don't understand how that's – uh I mean, you, what you're saying is that it's been a little played out and that people have taken liberties with it and all that. But, I mean, I'm just looking at the performance itself. I mean, I, even if it is just Queen being Queen, I, they're fantastic. I mean, and the crowd is just enraptured. There's, you know, the the famous shots when they take it kind of from behind the stage and you can just see out into the sea of people – when he's doing radio Gaga and I mean 80,000 people just like clapping on the beat. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, I understand what you're saying about getting tired of it and all, but I don't, I mean, you didn't even put it in your top five.
0: No, I'm so sick to death of hearing about it.
1: (sighs) I mean, can you at least acknowledge though, that it was like a,
0: Uh, I said, it's a great performance. Look, You want to do a two-hour live aid retrospective where we do our top ten list? That's making my top ten list. It's probably like eight or
1: nine for me. You're so. But con- I. You're so contrarian. Oh, oh come on!
0: <laughs> Don't be a a dick. <laughs> Listen. Well, so what? So what? It, if you didn't if you didn't pick this? What did you? What did you pick? The Thin White Duke, David Bowie. Okay. And and here's why. Okay. Yes, it's mid-1980s Bowie. Widely considered to be the Nadir of his career. I get it. Um, But a couple things. I don't give a shit about it being the Nadir of his career. It's a great performance. He came on after Queen. So that in and of itself was not easy. Um, He takes the stage, struts his stuff in a perfectly tailored suit, looks so damn cool despite this kind of Flock of seagulls-esque hairdo. <laughs> um, but here's what I like. Everyone expected him to come out and just do his 80s hits. And because he was a global superstar at this point in time, he was an MTV darling. And he opens the set with a deep cut, TVC 1-5, yeah. from probably the mid-70s. Um And aside from Modern Love, which he does a great job on, none of the songs are his 80s stuff. Uh, I think he does Rebel Rebel, which is great. Yeah. And then he does a very moving version of Heroes, and he cuts his performance short one song. This is very, very important to note, and foregoes the chance to have a big final showpiece uh, and instead introduces a famine video made by the Canadian Broadcasting Company. In doing so, He sort of breaks character. He's suddenly not a rock star and sort of earnestly looks into the audience and says, let's not forget why we're here. Have a good night. Watch this video. And then they show that now famous montage. It's a four-minute video of of images of starving children in Ethiopia set to drive by the cars. Yeah. Um, And it was thanks to that moment that the phones light up all over the world with donations, not the queen performance as they would have you believe in Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, It was that video montage, which was introduced by Bowie, which came on the heels of a phenomenal set by Bowie. Um, And I think what really amazed me, I've seen a lot of interviews with David Bowie. I've seen him live. Oftentimes he can come, he would come across as kind of an arrogant SOB. Uh, or sort of aloof, but in that moment on Live Aid, uh, he really seemed to get the point of the whole day, whereas I think a lot of the other performers didn't. And I just think he seemed like a real class act, and uh, that always stuck with me. I, I, to me, that's that's the best performance of the day,
1: yeah. You know, I don't think it's the best performance, but I think all, all in all, what you're saying, you make a pretty good case there for, for uh, you know, I heard that he, he was the one you know, the idea to have that video and put drive together was his idea. They had been kind of backstage and I think it, it just sort of may have happened where they were listening. They were watching that video as, I don't know if it was while the cars were rehearsing or something. And and I think that that all came from him. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, he, man, he, for a guy who was an incredible celebrity and so flamboyant in so many ways, um, you know, I've seen a lot of interviews with him recently, you know, where he was in the 80s. Recently?
0: He's, he died in, four years ago.
1: No, 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 I'm saying I've recently watched a lot of oh, oh, okay. interviews with him. Oh, um, okay. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, you said you were underprepared for tonight. That's, <laughs> that's a...
1: <laughs> yeah, where, where, you know, he went after MTV in the 80s for not playing enough, uh, you know, music from African-Americans. And, you know, he, he had a real conscience, I think, and a real sense of justice. So all right, I'll I'll give you that. I I don't know about leaving queen out of your top five, but uh, I'll, I'll concede that Bowie's an acceptable choice there. Although I will say say one notable thing. My top one is queen. Yours is Bowie. What is conspicuously missing from exactly
0: Exactly. Under pressure.
1: Under pressure would have been, would have been incredible. It's a, sort of a lost opportunity there.
0: Maybe that was the last song he was going to sing. Although no, because it was the Bowie set. It wasn't the queen set. So he would have gone out on stage with, uh, with Freddie, Roger, Brian, and John. Uh, Freddie wouldn't have come out with Bowie and his band. So. Right. Yeah. That is a lost opportunity. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Man, what might've been. And, uh, you know, there's that beautiful moment toward the end of Live Aid where um, McCartney's playing Let It Be, and Bob Geldof decides, because you know, shameless self-promoter, that he wants to walk on stage and join in the final verse. And uh, Bowie walks out with him. Allison Moye of Yaz mm. uh, walks out there, and so does Pete Townsend. And it's really just its beautiful to see that all of them on stage together at the end, and they kind of hoist Geldof up in the air, and it's a, it's a cool moment
1: yeah yeah absolutely Absolutely.
0: so 35 years later what do you think is the lasting impact of of these live aid concerts
1: oh man well it did so much good for for society you know raising so much money bringing you know even more than the money that they raised specifically that day just bringing it more into people's consciousness you know going forward from there and There've been so many, uh you know, there were follow-up concerts. uh, You know, the live live eight that they had with, uh
0: That was in two thousand and five. Okay. So twenty years later, and they're supposed to. They're supposed to do one this year. I don't know that it's going to happen.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Farm Aid. Farm Aid, right? The Camp, Yeah. So I think
0: they never. They. They could have called the Freddie Mercury tribute concert AIDS Aid.
1: They could have. That might have been. <laughs> I don't really know how to handle that one. That's <laughs>
0: <laughs> never mind.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, but it ushered in this, uh, you know, sort of an era of these these massive group concerts.
0: And it really is a beautiful thing to watch. I mean, go on YouTube and watch. There's someone who painstakingly uploaded every single moment from the MTV broadcast. And so by that, it has the backstage interviews. It has the promos. It has the commercials for crying out loud. And it's just this amazing, amazing time capsule. And when you look at people in the crowd at, 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 at the stadium in Philadelphia and in London, I can't help but think, is everyone in the eighties this ugly? <laughs> some <laughs> really homely looking people.
1: Wow. I, uh, yeah, I didn't really notice that, but uh, i have to go back and check. I don't know that I want to, but. Uh,
0: well, final
1: thoughts uh, on, on Live Aid. Just a hugely iconic, iconic moment. Um, something that I think in today's society, you can't even comprehend kind of how, how big a thing that was back then. You can't. I mean,
0: I look back at it and the only thing I could say is, you know, there comes a time when we heed a certain call <laughs> and the world must come together as one. And,
1: you know, they, tr- they did. <laughs> they really did. They really did. They really did. Thank you, Lionel Richie, for that. <laughs> um, also, kind of ruined Duran Duran, right? That-
0: it it ruined Duran. They would never... That was the last time the original lineup of Duran Duran would perform together for 15... No, for almost 20 years. Um Because the band split... A couple of the original guys left after that. The big issue was Simon Le Bon. Uh, they had a very good set. And A View to a Kill was a big hit that summer because uh, the Bon movie had just come out. And... As he often does, Simon LeBond lunges at those high notes and his voice just cracked. Um, and you could see, you could see it on his face, you could see it on the face of the rest of the band. Um, you know, bad enough, the couple of guys had to suffer through that Power Station performance, you know, an hour before. Um, which incidentally, Power Station were introduced by none other than Don Johnson. That's all
1: right. Wow. Yeah.
0: That, he, he comes out on stage at RFK and introduces all of them. And introduces them to the audience.
1: Yeah, Sonny Crockett yeah. himself. Wow. I know that, yeah, they had some. I saw Chevy Chase introduce the uh, Lionel Richie, I think. Yes. I uh,
0: Chevy Chase was there. Jack Nicholson was there. Bette Midler. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Piscopo, I think, as well. I don't know why. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. Well. Guy. Incredible day, makes you really miss the 80s. Doesn't make you miss famine so much. Um, But folks, do yourselves a favor and, and go on YouTube and watch as much of the Live Aid concert as you possibly can. It really is something to see. Absolutely. Chris, as always,
1: thank you. Thank you, John. It's been my pleasure.
0: All right, now go watch Bohemian Rhapsody for the 50th time.
1: I haven't seen it.
0: Yeah, don't be an asshole. Well, I know you watch it all the time.
1: I have not seen it. I have not seen it, honest to God. You're
0: not missing much. Not that
1: good. All right. Well, anyway. All right. On that note, thank you
0: all. Farewell. Feed the world.